So good to be with you guys today, this morning, church. Uh, today, we're going to be commencing uh, the first week in our evangelism course titled The Ripple Effect, uh, and this one's called Listen and Share. Uh, this passage really is an essential start to a series on evangelism because it brings us to the center of what evangelism is all about. That is Jesus. All the tips on evangelism and all the how-tos and all the strategies are extras that help us communicate the core. We can't begin to evangelize if we ourselves don't see the wondrous beauty of who Jesus is and his heart for sinners and sufferers like you and me. So I'm actually going to pray before we begin that God would help us to understand this. So why don't we bow our heads in prayer? Heavenly Father, this morning would you help us? Help us, Lord, to truly see the beauty of your Son, Jesus, and how undeserving we are of the mercy that he extends to us. Lord, would you use that to stir in us a heart to share the good news with others? And Lord God, would you make up the difference in our hearts of the hearers when my words fail to grasp the beauty and splendor found in this text? In Jesus' name, amen. Before John recounts the conversation that occurred between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, there is actually some really important context that he gives. So read with me from verse 1. We didn't read it in the Bible, but we didn't read it just then, but read with me from verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making, more, was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So something about the Pharisees learning that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John made Jesus leave for Galilee. The text isn't clear exactly what it is about this fact that causes Jesus to leave. Uh, but one thing is for sure is that it wasn't out of fear. Jesus is sovereignly in control of the situation at hand. It's not within the personhood or within the character of Jesus to flee out of cowardice. But the point is that there's something here about the Pharisees learning about the success of Jesus that meant he had to leave. Alongside that reason, while he was departing for Galilee, there's actually something he had to do. Take a look at verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, this is interesting because there's actually no reason why Jesus would have had to pass through Samaria at all to get to Galilee. He actually could have gone around Samaria by traveling on the east side of the Jordan River. So there should be a slide for this, if we could get that up. Yeah, so if you can see on this map here on my right, your left, this is the route that Jesus took uh, in order to get to Galilee. You can see more clearly on the picture on the right where Galilee is. So it's like Judea, Samaria, Galilee. And what Jews would have done is actually would have gone by this little river here on the other side of it, past Samaria and into Galilee. And that's because of the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jews and Samaritans did not like one another. Just so that you can understand who the Samaritans are, they are half Jewish and half Gentile. What we read in 2 Kings is that while the kingdom of Israel was split in two, the northern kingdom was raided by the Assyrians. And these Assyrians invited in other nations, and those other nations had children with the Jews that were left there. And so came to be the Samaritans, the half-Jews, the half-Gentiles. And Jews didn't like these Samaritans. 
In fact, when Jews came back after the Babylonian exile uh, to rebuild the temple, they denied Samaritans rebuilding the temple with them. So these two groups have a long history of butting heads with one another. And so it should call our attention that Jesus made a deliberate decision to go there, to pass through Samaria, the place where Jews would not go. Just so you understand how significant this is, allow me to paint Jesus' actions within events that have occurred within the past 100 years. It is as though Jesus is entering black South African communities during the time of apartheid or visiting a Jewish concentration camp during the time of Nazi Germany, or drinking from the fountain titled Colored during the Jim Crow era of southern states of the US, or perhaps to use an image from our own history, living and visiting an indigenous reserve where Aboriginals were kept away from the rest of society. This here is a sort of radical behavior that Jesus is exhibiting There's no reason why Jesus had to go to Samaria other than that he decided to go. Jesus is making a conscious decision that Samaria is a place that he has to visit. He makes this decision knowing full well the cultural boundaries he's overstepping here. This is actually the first point of understanding the wonderfulness of Jesus here. It's that Jesus is not dictated by his culture. I mean, if you were to put Jewish society and our Western Australian society side by side with one another, I think you'd probably find that the Jews have more in common with the Samaritans than what they have with us. I'm sure that they would probably despise us more than they despise the Samaritans. Yet Jesus came for all people, not just for his people. That included the people that his own people hated, which oftentimes, if you read the Gospels, would get him in trouble. This this salvation for all people that Jesus is willing to give is a act of great mercy and kindness. Let's continue on from verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus traveled from Judea to Sychar, which is about a 48-kilometer journey. So if you were to leave this building right now and travel and walk all the way to Melbourne, that's about 48 kilometers. So that's, that's what we're talking about when Jesus has a journey. Um, the text says that he was weary. So we're not talking about just a light tiredness here. We're talking about a physical exhaustion. What's more, the text says it was about the sixth hour, which is midday. So here he is exhausted from his 48-kilometer journey from about here to Melbourne, and it's in the blazing hot heat, and he's waiting outside a well. And something unusual occurs. You see, no one was expected to come to this well at the middle of the day in the blazing hot heat. He's here without anything to draw water with, that's in verse 11, So it's not like he's going to get the water himself. His disciples have gone into the city to buy food, and instead of going with them uh, and seeking refreshment in the city, he waits aimlessly, seemingly aimlessly, at this well. And yet out of nowhere, this woman appears. Women would normally come to gather the water in the morning, in the cool of the day, and they'd come as a group. And here this woman is alone, in the middle of the day, 
in the blazing hot heat, unexpectedly. But there's no mistake about it, Jesus is being extremely intentional here. He's being extremely intentional to have a conversation with this woman. He went out of his way to travel to Samaria. And instead of going into the town, where at least you'd expect some people to be, he's waiting here for this woman to come. Read on with me, and let's have a look at how this conversation goes from verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus asked this woman for a drink, and the woman, understandably so, replies, quite confused. To begin with, she says, I'm a Samaritan. As we've already discussed, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans because of the history of conflict that these two groups have. And the other thing she mentions is, I'm a woman. Have a look at the way the disciples react when they come to see Jesus encountering a woman in verse 27. They come back to the well after getting food, and the text says that they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Having a conversation with a woman who is not your wife is not something that you would do as a Jewish man. So, of course, this woman is confused. She's expecting to come here and draw water alone. And yet, it's not just anybody waiting for her. It's a man. Furthermore, it's a Jewish man. She wasn't expecting Jesus, but you can bet that Jesus was fully expecting her. The way that he waits seemingly aimlessly at this well really speaks towards the heart of Christ. What appears as aimless waiting as a well is actually a pursuit over a woman who nobody else was going to talk to. She's too low on the social ladder as a female Samaritan for anybody to talk to, but nobody is so low that Jesus cannot reach them. Nobody is willing to relate with this woman, but the heart of Christ is so kind that he offers even the lowliest of people an insurmountable gift. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This response to the woman in one word is actually quite profound. As seen in her response to Jesus asking her for water, this woman has clearly been conditioned by the culture to think that there's no way that a Jewish man could ask a Samaritan woman for water. But Jesus doesn't turn her away. He isn't fussed that she didn't grab him water when he asked for it. The patient heart of Christ meets her where she is at and essentially says, if only you knew the gift of God. And if only you knew that the man standing in front of you, that is I, Jesus, is the one who could give it to you. She needs this living water. What Jesus, of course, is referring to here is salvation. But she doesn't understand the magnitude of this gift. Reading from verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. What the woman does here, her response, is actually something that we respond with all the time. She's so caught up in the task at hand that there's nothing to draw literal water with that she misses the great gift of salvation that Jesus is offering her. And we too miss it all the time. Jesus offers us eternal salvation. He offers us a right standing with God. He offers us a gift of God. He offers us living water. And we can be so transfixed in the tasks of our daily lives, whether it be picking up the kids from school, our jobs, taking them to extracurricular activities, making sure we put away money for retirement or sports, or whatever it is, we can be so transfixed in our tiny little cubicle boxes and tunnel-visioned into making our tiny little insignificant lives better for ourselves that we miss the gift of God. We miss Jesus, our Savior, and we can walk right by Him. If you've ever seen a street preacher, um, either online or in person, and I know the method of sharing the gospel isn't favored by some, but bear with me. If you've ever seen them, they're out here screaming to the top of their lungs, offering the gift of salvation. Come and see what Jesus has done for you. And how many people just walk by? How many people are too busy to listen? I've got bills to pay, work to get to, kids to drop off. Or even in personal evangelism, what we're going to be learning over the next few weeks to do, how many times have you shared your faith with a friend or shared the gospel with someone or perhaps before you became a Christian, someone shared their faith with you? And how many times has that person quickly changed the conversation to something more relevant to their lives, unwilling to hear the gospel? They just completely drive by the greatest gift ever given, too caught up and consumed in their tiny little lives, thinking to try and make it more important that they miss the living water being offered to them. They miss Jesus completely. And you may be sitting there feeling relieved that that's not you. Thank goodness I didn't miss the gift. Two things are wrong with this response. Firstly is that Christians can be guilty of this as well. How often do we let days go by without praying? without acknowledging our Heavenly Father, without thanking Him for the gift He has given us in Christ Jesus. And secondly, this response is too self-centered. It should grieve our hearts that non-Christians can pass up such greater salvation. That the street preachers are out there doing their best to warn people of the dangers if they don't repent. And people will just walk by. Or that your friend will gladly turn the conversation to something more relevant to their lives rather than consider the fact that Jesus died for their sake. This Samaritan woman's response can be like just so many of us. Missing or neglecting the great salvation which has been given to us too caught up in our own little worlds. And so how good is it then that we have a great high priest in heaven who is able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward? Jesus is so patient with us. And indeed, he's patient with this woman. He doesn't turn her away or turn her aside or give up, but he continues to persist in the conversation. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus further explains here what he means by living water, clarifying it for the woman. The thirst that Jesus is talking about is not a physical thirst. He's not, saying to the, he's not offering a water to the woman that can be fixed by the water that can get, be dug out of the well. The water that he has to give has to do with a spiritual thirst. In Scripture, thirst is often used as a metaphor for spiritual desire. In your own time, perhaps when you get home, read Psalm 42 or Psalm 63. Both of these psalms use the metaphor of thirst to signify a thirst after God. This thirst is a thirst that all humanity was endowed with the moment that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit way back in Genesis 3. It's a thirst that all of humanity has experienced since the separation from God in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is saying to this woman, Woman, I'm not here to help you fetch your water. That task can wait. You can wait for that. I'm here to offer you a water that will mean you will never be thirsty again. I'm here to quench a thirst of yours that everybody has had since Adam. Amidst everything we think we need to experience happiness and fulfillment in this lifetime is a central, largely overlooked craving for the eternal life in the presence of our Maker. And Jesus is offering the woman something to satisfy that thirst of hers. If you read verse 14 closely, it says, The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This all of a sudden became more about just water. This is the sort of water that when you drink it, it continues to create in you a spring of water, something continually flowing. What Jesus is trying to communicate here is that if you put your faith in him, if you cherish him, if you hold on to him as the one true cup of water that is able to quench this desire to be with God, he will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit which can refine you and enable you to be more Christ-like. That can help you to pray. It's the gift that keeps on giving. You don't just put your faith in Christ and have him abandon you. But it's the Spirit that helps you walk the Christian life. And one day, on top of the aid that you have gotten in the Holy Spirit in this lifetime, you will have eternity in the fullness of God's presence. This is serious grace and serious mercy. The fact that God doesn't just forgive and then forget about us, but instead He gives us the gift of His Spirit that should cause us to fall on our knees in thanks and gratitude. Now this woman, still not understanding, her response actually suggests that the woman is still thinking in terms of her physical needs. This woman is just not getting that Jesus is offering her something greater than water, something that transcends the current need that she has. But what Jesus will mention next is exactly what the woman needs to hear. It can seem like a sudden change of pace when you're reading the passage, but what he brings up is exactly what the woman needs. She doesn't, she's seeing her need currently as purely physical. 
what Jesus is going to get her to see is that she actually has a need for salvation. Read on with me from verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, oh, you were right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one who you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So far, our character profile of this woman is as follows. She's ethnically cast out. She's a woman, which, as we've discussed, is something, not a trait to be desired in this day and age. And what the passage adds is that she's had five husbands and a sixth man who is not her husband. She's a sinner. This woman is the complete bottom of the barrel. She's hated by the Jews because of her ethnicity. She's a woman which disqualifies her from exclusively male spaces, including the inner courts of the temple of Jerusalem, which is where the presence of God is. And she's had five husbands. She's currently with another man who is not her husband. She's the bottom of the barrel, the lowest of the lows. And reading this brings so much understanding to what we've already seen previously. It's no wonder she's going out in the middle of the day to draw water. She's had five husbands. She's a socially outcast. She's either so ashamed of her past that she can't bring herself to make, uh, to make conversation and draw water with other women, or her culture has thrown her out. Perhaps it's a bit of both. There's nobody who wants to be associated with this woman because she's so wretched a sinner. She's literally a sinner amongst sinners. Even the Samaritans who are sinful can see that there's something wrong with her, that she is a sinner. She is the bottom of the barrel. She's so ashamed that she tries to conceal her past in verse 17 by saying that she has no husband. She's only telling half of the truth to Jesus to try and conceal the real truth, but of course, there's no hiding from Jesus. Jesus knows precisely that she's had five separate husbands. He knows the sinful state that her life is in indeed. That is why he wants to have a conversation with her. And this woman, she's us. We're not Jesus in this story. No matter how hard we try, we will always be sinful We are like this woman in every single way, shape, and form. We're 2,000 years out from Jesus in a culture that looks nothing like his. We're so caught up in our little worlds that we neglect the gift of salvation that Jesus offers us. I'm willing to bet that at some stage or another, we felt like outcasts in certain groups. And most of all, if you think that none of the above applies to you, we're all sinners. It doesn't matter if you're physically sick or the most able-bodied person in the world. It doesn't matter if you're a man or if you're a woman. It doesn't matter if your culture loves you or not. It doesn't matter if you're the top of the social ladder or at the bottom. It doesn't matter where you came from. We are all equally as sinful as one another. We fall short of the glory of God in word, thought, and deed every single day. We are all guilty of the charge of sin and all deserving of the punishment of sin. We are the unclean ones, and God is the holy, perfect, righteous one. There is a chasm between us and God. And yet, Jesus has gone out of his way to cross that chasm and to reach us. The same way that Jesus literally goes out of his way to travel to Samaria and offer this sinful, bottom-of-the-barrel, 
maligned, wretched woman eternal life is the same way that Jesus goes out of his way to reach us. And he did that on the cross. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He bridged the gap between himself and us. Oh, we who were so far off from God, we who had sinned against God, we who wanted to do things our own way, we who were so completely depraved that we couldn't recognize our own sin, we whose hearts were so hard, we whose lives were breaking at the seams, who couldn't keep it together on our own but refused God's help. There was a great, cosmic, big, devouring separation between us and God. And we never knew the same way this woman didn't know. We never knew our own need. Yet Jesus died on the cross, taking the punishment which we deserved, and he crossed the gap for us. The cross is the bridge between us and God. That whoever believes in the Son of God Whoever believes in the man who died on the cross will not perish apart from God, but instead enjoy eternity in the beauty of God's glorious presence. And we didn't do anything to deserve it. Of course, seeing that Jesus knows exactly who she is and what she's done, she recognizes that the person in front of her is not some nobody. Read on with me from verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is a place which people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. This flow of this passage just keeps getting better and better. Consider at first, Jesus goes out to talk to a woman who is an outcast among outcasts. Then consider that Jesus offers the greatest gift she could ever receive, even though she never asked for it, and she didn't recognize that she needed that gift. And then consider that Jesus is willing to give his, this, her this gift even though she's a wretched sinner. And then consider that Jesus tells her that the Father is actually wanting her worship. Imagine this woman her whole life being told by Jews that somehow she as a Samaritan woman cannot know God. That she as a Samaritan woman cannot be known by him. And so imagine the joy that it would have been to her knowing that God is actually seeking such worshippers who will worship him in spirit and in truth, regardless of who you are or where you worship. And it is with this that she finally gets to understand who she is talking to. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that a Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes he's going to tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who you speak to am he. The person who she's been talking to the entire time is the long-awaited Messiah. Messiah coming from a Hebrew word which means the chosen one. 
This is the one sent by God. And this is how he behaves? This is what he's offering me. This is the one that I've been waiting for, and he's beyond my wildest dreams. It's what's running through the woman's head at the moment. This here is amazing, and it should make us overjoyed that Jesus Christ, the chosen one, the Son of God, who indeed is God, eats and drinks, drinks with sinners. Not only is he able to commune with sinners, but it is, he is able to give them the greatest gift that they could ever receive, a gift that only he can give, living water, eternal life, salvation. And not only does he offer us eternal life and freedom from our sin, it gets better. He tells us that the Father is actually seeking people to worship him, who she has seen the Messiah to be in this short conversation moves her so deeply that she leaves her water gel at the well and goes away to tell other Samaritans about Jesus. My plea to you this morning is the same plea that the woman had in verse 29. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Come and see Jesus who isn't phased by what we've done. Come and see Jesus, whose heart aches for sinners and sufferers to know him. Come and see Jesus, who was unjustly crucified on the cross for the sake of your sins. Come and see Jesus, who right now is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, advocating for us. Come and see Jesus, who doesn't care about our ethnic background or the way that others view us. Come and see Jesus, who wants and desires for you to repent and to know him. Come and see Jesus who wants you to worship him. Today, if you hear his calling, if you hear his voice, don't turn your hearts away from him in rebellion. Come and see Jesus. Because you know what? The Samaritans sure did. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Her encounter with Jesus, move the Samaritan woman so deeply that she had to tell others about it. And even more surprisingly is that they listened. God actually used a wretched sinner who had been redeemed by grace to spread the gospel to Samaritans, to bring them to, to repentance. So my plea to you, if you are sitting here today and you don't know Jesus, is come and see. Come and see Jesus I'd love to have a conversation with you after the service if this is you. And for those of us who already are Christians, let's not neglect the beauty of our Savior. Remember how it is that he saved you. He who is patient with us, who crosses over barriers for us, who in his love and mercy gave us a great salvation which transcends any current need we can possibly imagine. And let it be from this place of humility, of imperfection, and of thanks that we become eager to share the gospel with others. Amen.